yeah, welcome. Thanks for having thanks me. For, uh, thanks for coming out here and making your trip out to this undisclosed location here. And I have no idea where I am. FEMA Region 10. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sitting here with uh, Mark Thielman. He's running for governor. He used to be the Alsea School Superintendent. And, uh, you know, we just wanted to talk and get to know him and, and see what he's about and um, kind of uh, start that whole process. So how are things going? I mean, we're getting into the campaign. The The GOP guy just resigned mm-hmm. last last night. Was it last night? Yeah, it was. It last was. Night. And uh, so things are heating up and we're getting closer to that primary and stuff. But, uh, yeah, what's what's on your radar right now? Well, obviously, now that I'm unemployed, I have lots of extra time, mm-hmm. and uh, that's been a real blessing because um, being able to campaign full time has really amped things up. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've got to get used to uh, uh, being able to focus on people, or watching crowds of people you don't know, and you walk in the room and everyone knows you. Uh, <laughs> it's it's something I'm going to have to get used to, uh, but it's been just a phenomenal experience. It's a real honor. Uh, last week in Deschutes County, the Republican women's group, when I was introduced, they all stood up in standing ovation. And wow. I was like, wow, this is amazing. So yeah. there's a lot of energy out there, a lot of hope. People are really looking for a different kind of leadership and some change. Yeah. And that's the that's the real thing that, you know, I really wanted to grasp and, and why I'm supporting you. And, and I look forward to uh, your campaign and your future and everything is because Oregon, a lot of the stigmas, Oregon's like, oh, you know, they'll never, it'll never happen. You'll never get there. You know, Oregon's been blue for 30 years. It's never going to change. But if there's any opportunity right now, right now is that time. Um, people are fed up with the high gas prices and mm-hmm. the closing of the port and the uh, timber unity stuff. I mean, Oregon's a big state mm-hmm. and there are a lot of angry people and uh, the Democrats just aren't doing it. So uh, what a perfect time and a perfect segue for you to come in and ride that horse. I know you got a lot of plans. You have a lot of good mm-hmm. ideas. More importantly, you have a lot of experience yep. uh, with this type of navigation, you know, because keep in mind, you know, we were talking and joking earlier, but we're in FEMA region 10 here. <laughs> And, uh, you know, we're paving new paths and and we're pioneering, you know, we're back in the Oregon Trail. Yes, we are. Uh, And so what a great leader you've shown to be and you've proven yourself to be uh, being the superintendent. It's uh, it's it's been a really good thing. We've done a couple events together in the past. Mm -hmm. And how amazing was it that at the very beginning of the riff of all this friction going on with the pandemic and and everything surrounding that, that you, prior to your candidacy, prior to everything, were standing right there next to me and other American people. Yep. And uh, and so it's really telling. You you really understand uh, who your friends are when you know who your enemies are. Yes, and uh, I have many enemies, so so uh, it's a little easier in my line of work to know who the uh, who the opposition is. But, yeah. But just know it's anyone who doesn't uh, support. Um, uh, individual thought, free thinking, mm-hmm. um, real solutions to complex problems. Um, you know, I can name a few, Governor Brown, Tina Kotek, Tobias Reed, many others. And, uh, you know, we've had almost 40 years of this. Yeah. And and it builds up over time. And, and now we've reached the tipping point where people are living in real time what the end product of progressivism means. Mm-hmm. And what I think a lot of folks are finding, as you know, uh, my campaign is not just popular among conservatives. 
Yeah. There's a lot of former Democrats, uh, at least half my campaign team, or I call them recovering Democrats, uh, or they're non-affiliated. And they're, they're, they're saying, hey, we've, we want somebody who's going to tell us the truth and uh, bring in innovation and real solution. And, and that's what uh, uh, my, camp, my campaign has been bringing. And I think that's why I'm the only grassroots um, uh, candidate. And what I mean by that is I'm the only one who hasn't raised or been given a million dollars by interest groups. Yeah. Um, I've been given, you know, uh, 10, 15, $25 by almost 1200 people. And it's amazing. Um, but I'm, uh, ranked in the, the top, I guess they got us down to top, the top six. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of cool out of a field of, uh, 17, 22, somewhere in there it changes. So, yeah. But how telling is that when a lot of your base and are grassroots people and you are getting individually supported. I mean, mm-hmm. you're, you're resonating with what people want and what people are longing for. And, uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's a really good thing to see. So prior to this, prior to getting into the race and the chaos and you stepping down and all of this and all of that, mm-hmm. you were just a superintendent before the superintendent. And before that controversy, who's mm-hmm. Mark Dillman? Well, I was a guy who was uh, born and raised in Spokane, Washington, and I was the son of um, uh, a guy named Dave. So son of David, a little biblical analogy there. Uh, but my grandfather had started easy loader boat trailers back in the late, well, late 50s, early 60s. Mm-hmm. And um, of course, that took off. And so it's really a rags to riches story. Um, I remember at four, four and five uh, having to push my dad's car out of the driveway because he couldn't afford to get the reverse gear fixed and the transmission. And, uh, you know, eight years later, we were living in a different neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> and because uh, in the 70s, uh, things were bad economically, if you remember that. Well, maybe you don't. You weren't even born. But just trust me. Hey, on hey, it. Hey. Yeah, trust me on that. <laughs> um, but people bought beer in boats mm. in those days. And so, um, you know, so I've, I've been on both sides, um, uh, really raised in my formative years as a blue collar experience. Mm-hmm. And then um, in my late teens and into my college years as in that, you know, more professional white collar um, business executive experience. And I think I think that's really what ironically prepared me well for the place I'm in right now. Sure. So you really got to experience... Uh, the American concept of pursuing happiness and starting from the bottom and working your way through all those different uh, trials and tribulations that come with that, Mm -hmm. um, which also in return makes you grateful and keeps you grounded um, because you haven't been fed all of your uh, good things. You've actually had to earn them and work and, Mm -hmm. and do things. So, yeah, that's what, yeah. Well, and, you know, just so you know, I mean, uh, I was so uh, fortunate. My parents um, footed some tuition to go to a private college, and it was Whitworth University and mm-hmm. Whitworth College back in those days. But, um, you know, I, I appreciate you saying that because I remember being 18 years old in college, recognizing that I was blessed, mm-hmm. uh, that that Easy Loader was um, the engine, and that my dad and his skills and my, my mom, of course, uh, who supported him, um, and I didn't want to, um, let that go to my head. And so I worked my way through college just as if I didn't have that support. Yeah. And, um, and I really do think that that helped define, um, a little bit of my stick to itness. I, I tend to persevere in adversity mm-hmm. and, um, you know, and I didn't probably didn't have to live through some of that, but I even had a car and I wouldn't have my dad fix it. If yeah. it broke down, I'd ride my 10 speed to work. You know, the good old days. <laughs> yeah. And that's good because yeah. you, I think that you recognize the value of those lessons 
And so it's almost self-indulged, you know, just you wanted to discover yourself and be your own man, figure out where you were going. And well, and you know, in essence, I wanted to be free. Mm-hmm. Uh, freedom is, is, is what it's all about setting uh, my own path. You know, um, I grew up in uh, kind of a rural area and then I ended up uh, wanting to be a hunter and fisher and, and uh, a country guy and a farmer. And I ended up doing that. So yeah. you never know in this country where you end up, yep. you could be in an undisclosed location doing a, a podcast interview. You know, <laughs> we could be anywhere, folks. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, no, that's uh, that's really good. Yep. And and uh, once again, you know, I appreciate you coming here and, and being able to talk about things. So um, what are some things and some challenges that. So you went through life, you're 18, mm-hmm. you became a teacher. I did. Yeah. Okay. You became a teacher and then evolved into what, what happened after that? Well, I became a teacher and then a farmer also. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad got drunk and bought a vineyard once at a, at a party. <laughs> and so, uh, I was off for summer break and my dad was Wrote desperate on a napkin. No, literally he was like, uh, he called me and said, Hey, I'm desperate. I, I bought this vin into this vineyard and it's, it needs some help. So, um, that's how I got into farming. Yeah. So I, I got a teaching job. I, I also, you know, when you have summers off was able to do a small farming operation and, and a lot of hard work that came with it, but it was very, uh, successful. So I had to, you know, make payroll and, and hire people and irrigation. And, and I had to do lease deals with people because, you know, I didn't have my own land. And um, so it was just a natural transition. But um, eventually in Washington State, where I was from, after seven years, you're required to uh, go to extra schooling, like to get a master's. Because mm-hmm. this is how they, uh, you know, the unions make money for their uh, more unions, right? So uh, I thought, well, what's the easiest degree to get that helps me meet this requirement so I can keep teaching and farming? Because I was loving life, I had kids and married. And um, I thought, oh, administration. <laughs> 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 yeah. So anyway, that's uh, and uh, I didn't even finish my internship as an as a uh, and you know an admin principal. Um, they never really let me go back to the classroom. Yeah. So that's how I became an assistant principal wow. and then, then a principal and then eventually superintendent about four years later. Awesome. So, so that's awesome. So you were superintendent, COVID hits, mm-hmm. everything gets crazy. Nobody knows anything. Uh, and here's Mark Thielman, mm-hmm. you know, making headlines and people are like, who is this guy? This is crazy. He's actually opening his school. You were doing something that was unheard of. Yeah. Uh, could you kind of explain what was your reasoning behind that and, and what kind of things did you have to overcome to, well, for folks to to know, um, I triple majored in college Mm -hmm. and I didn't want to miss any opportunity to learn anything I could. So you're going to love these degrees, right? I got a BA in biology. I got a BA in history. Those two really don't mirror together, but, and then I had a BA in education. And so that biology degree is, uh, it's, it's my hobby. It's, I've been, I never left studying the latest science, anything. Mm-hmm. So for, you know, going on what, 20, 20 plus years now. Um, so my, my knowledge of viruses and pathology and epidemiology is very extensive, 
Plus, I did uh, forestry research uh, a couple of summers, and so I, I'm very familiar in how to analyze data, scatter plots, that kind of thing. So, ironically, remember, COVID hit in China and mm-hmm. Asia and, and uh, then the Middle East and then into Europe. And uh, so there was actually a lot of scientific um, papers and reviews that you could get with this powerful thing. I know it's going to shock you. It's called the Internet. Yeah. And um, so when I when they closed us down that first spring, which I mean, I knew it was going to get way crazy just knowing the players, because I also had done 10 years of policy work in the legislature with solving complex problems, including PERS. So um, kind of a diverse background. So when you know all the legislators, you know, the governor, I worked with Governor Brown on the PERS reform. She's a little different. Um, that's when you realize just how poorly we're being led and how badly they were going to handle COVID. And it's almost as if they had an aversion to the science. So what they were telling us did not match the, the research papers and the studies and the, the data that I was reviewing. Yeah. And that created a real moral quandary for me as yeah. a leader. And so at that point, with all the pressure and everything else going on, uh, with everybody complying to this non-science situation and just not really doing what should have been done mm-hmm. to properly combat everything. They're doing, in fact, the opposite mm-hmm. and all this opposition and chaos, everything else. Here you are coming through and uh, communicating with your district and your parents mm-hmm. and listening to them. You're getting emails from them and you're collaborating with them. Then what did you do? You just decided to open your school and well, they we as you know the the schools weren't allowed to be open. Mm-hmm. So what I did is I um, I kind of started talking to legislative people, and um, I also started pushing out um, through my network of of influencers uh, good science. In other words, I told people the truth that not only could schools be open, but that. Um, this disease was or this virus was manageable, Mm -hmm. especially since it was very obvious it wasn't a big threat to young people. And so, um, you know, then it became a matter of, you know, can we keep staff safe and how do we do that? How do we how do we outsmart the union? So uh, that created uh, a media blitz. Uh, If you recall, remember, we had COVID in Portland and Salem, but we didn't have any in eastern Oregon. And so when I pushed that out to my colleagues in Eastern Oregon, what did they do? You know, their newspapers were like, this is not right. Yeah. And boy, did it work. So the governor sued for peace. So there was a phone call, Senator Finley um, and the Lake uh, ESD. So I made a trip down to Lake um, or down to Lakeview and met with uh, a couple of people that were going to be in that phone call meeting. And so, you know, we we had a festive evening of... uh, of me sitting down and rehearsing with them what to tell the governor. And it worked. 250 kids or less. And so I just took my school district and said, these kinds of schools can be open. Yeah. And, um, and she allowed that. So it was called the Rural School Exception and Safe Harbor. Hmm. But it was really telling because what I found, you know, kind of fast forwarding with the vaccine mandates and the state workers and things that they were putting pressures on them, uh, is they would target the more vulnerable populations Mm -hmm. and groups and demographics of people that weren't actually pushing back. Mm -hmm. You had a plan, you had science backing up your plan. You push that forward and you just presented it. Yep. Uh, And the big thing is, is just putting egg on their face. They don't like that very much. No, you know that they're, they're a PR organization. They aren't really quite a government agency, right? 
Well, you could imagine. So uh, I think they were they were thinking just east side schools would try to stay open. Remember, they put a lot of pressure to only be open K three. Mm-hmm. So um, I said, okay, we'll play this game. So we were going to open. We I said we're going to be open for the first two weeks K five, and then after that K twelve. And um, so the humor of that was is of course that made the governor very upset. And uh, remember, we had the forest fires at that time yep, too. I do remember. And, um, so other districts kind of took a two-week hiatus, and I said, well, there's the two weeks. So <laughs> so, so we brought everybody. And so we were open K-12, and she lost her mind. Uh, you could, and so what I'm getting at, though, is that I think that OHA convinced themselves and the governor's team that, well, this will be good because uh, Mark Thielman's district will have a big outbreak, and then, you know, this will actually help our cause. Well, of course, the outbreak never happened. Sure. Matter of fact, we went all year without a single case of COVID traced to the classroom. How amazing. <laughs> um, Sorry. How interesting is it that the more tests that you take, the more cases you're going to have? Yeah. And then what the classification was, what determines a case? Uh, I was looking at a county in Texas. They actually presented it, and they said that for one case of a confirmed COVID case, mm-hmm they were adding an additional 35 to 36 people mm-hmm. surrounding that, calling them potential cases. So yeah. here you have all this newspaper articles talking about, oh, there's 1,200 cases today mm-hmm. and potential cases mm-hmm. uh, looped in together. They never actually distinguish what was a case, what wasn't a case. Mm-hmm. You go to the hospitals, they're empty. You know, just a lot of things that didn't quite add up. And well, yeah, and I don't, you know, that behavior is one of the reasons I decided to run for governor. I mean, that... Um, you know, it just raises my uh, uh, barometer just listening, you know, just just reviewing and having you talk about it because it's called telling people half-truths. Yep. And half-truths divide people and half-truths scare people. Uh, it's better as a leader to deal in truth or lie. Mm-hmm. And, um, and better, of course, truth is the best. And so, you know, I really want to emphasize what I did is I told my staff the truth. And then I went, I, I outfoxed the union because one, we're a charter school and half our staff isn't in the union. But the other thing I did is I told staff, um, I, I sent them an email saying, hey, I don't know your health and I don't want to know. It's not my place. Mm-hmm. It's your business. So um, please do your own risk assessment and tell me what kind of personal protective equipment you need. And of course, that garnered only one, a couple complaints from my most liberal staff. And so and I brought them into an administrative team meeting, the whole staff. And sure enough, most of them showed up about a little, about 85 percent. And uh, so they got to watch principals and myself talking about our plan. And then I brought the teachers in and then I just said, hey, you know, here's the complaint I'm hearing is that um, I'm supposed to tell everybody exactly how to stay safe. And uh, I can't do that because I'm not clairvoyant and I don't know everybody's indices. Um, And that's that's why we have to have a thing called a relationship. So uh, your boss is asking you, the teachers, to do your own assessment and tell me what you need. And if that includes teaching from home and getting paid, that's what we are going to do if that's what you need. So what you did, I call it, you take the argument away from the union. Mm-hmm. See, well, 100% of our staff showed up to work. That's, I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. Everybody showed up. It's incredible. And the kids and everybody. Yep. Which yeah. is, and so you're back business as usual. Yeah. yeah. It, you know, uh, I call that leadership. It's the kind of leadership we need in the state. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So from there, you just started to run for governor. Uh, I was actually there at the event when you announced that you were going to run for governor. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I'll tell you the real reason I ran for governor. Okay. Okay, because that's when I started thinking about it. Let's hear the secret sauce. So the ballots went out uh, that first year of full COVID, and uh, the same week ballots went out. Remember, it was a contentious election, national election. Mm -hmm. Um, COVID cases went up by 100, you know, like they were doubling every every five to seven days. Mm -hmm. And I was like, huh? And next thing I know, I received correspondence from the Department of Education that Safe Harbor would no longer be allowed as of January 1st. And that means that LC would have had to be forced to be closed. Yeah. And of course, we'd had no cases of COVID. Yeah. We had been operating full K-12. So that started a war, uh, began through the email between myself and the government, because believe me, I stepped it up and I threw down. So what I did is I realized that a couple of things had to happen. One is um, uh, we had to find a way to get all schools open. Because I knew they were lying to us because COVID couldn't possibly spike like that. It hadn't done it in any other state. Yeah. Not, not with that kind of increase, uh, especially not a state uh, that's sparsely populated like Oregon. So uh, what I noticed, too, is when I went and reviewed the data at OHA is I, I discovered there were two portals. There's the portal that had no security, no password. And that anybody could, if they had the link, could add a COVID case. And that's the one that the county, the county health departments were using. Wow. And I had a secret source who sent this to me on a oh Sunday. Gosh. This is after I had launched a war with OHA because I yeah. called them and said, hey, I think there's something wrong with your data. Yeah. And um, so what, what was hilarious about it, and I'll try to be brief because, you know, there's so much to talk about. But the, the, the humor of it was is, is that hospitals re- were reporting from a secure portal that had a password and a chain of custody. So hospitals were reporting actual COVID people coming in mm-hmm. and, um, and you know, hospitalizations and cases. And counties were doing what you just described as, you know, COVID for real and probable or possible. Yes. And calling them all one thing. So that's why the cases. So basically, the local county health departments were told to up the cases when ballots went out. Yeah. Now, that's called lying to people. Yeah, okay. scaring. Well, it scared a lot of people. And mm-hmm. so then they were going to close my school down based on that. So what I did is I forced a meeting with the state epidemiologist, which was something they allowed superintendents to be able to do. Uh, the first day I met with uh, one, his name was Ben, and he didn't fare well. So he asked me to meet the next morning, and he brought in some other guy. I don't know if it was like a Dr. Seidlinger or somebody, uh, not the brightest lamp on the line. And um, they came at me with something called stochastic analysis, which I think they thought I wouldn't know what that was. And then I said, well, great. I don't think you've done one because I haven't seen it. And then they got real quiet, and there was this long pause. Um, and then the one guy says, well, why are you doing this, Mark? I said, well, you're going to close our school. We have no cases of COVID. The, um, uh, you've got this huge discrepancy in data. But most importantly, um, anyone can add a COVID case, because I added one, by the way. It was a Korean woman named Wat Fook, and I put it in there. I think my wife put it on Facebook. So they were already upset with me at, uh-huh. by this time. And... Um, and I said, but um, your hospitalization uh, case rate and, and death rate have been going down while cases have gone up 400 and some odd percent over a month. That's impossible. And then, believe me, they were deadly quiet. And then they said, well, what do you want? I said, I want my school open. I've already asked for Safe Harbor to be extended. Well, sure enough, about 20 minutes later, apparently an email came in extending Safe Harbor. And if that isn't corruption at yeah. the highest level, yeah. I don't know what is. Fortunately, I missed that email. And then I got involved with Yamhill County. Uh, I sent them a letter telling them, telling them all this in a letter, saying they're lying to you in a nice way. 
and told my recommendation to Yamhill County was open up. Well, they didn't want me sending that letter, but it's a good thing I missed that email. So the, the thing is, I want people to understand this. Our government, that's when I decided to run for governor. Yeah. So I did a whistleblower on 1218, mm-hmm. sent it to about 300 people. I even got a call from some guy, a representative in Montana, because you know how people forward stuff. Sure. Um, and I did that on purpose to protect myself. And um, what was interesting is all school districts were open by January. Remember that? Yep. Well, you're welcome. Thank you. See? <laughs> See, folks? If you take action and you apply yourself and, and, and do things and go against the grain mm-hmm. when nobody else is there, uh, it's, impor- it's important. And that's how change mm-hmm. happens. And how interesting and how far down the rabbit hole we've gone. Yeah to where people are still masking and still doing all of these things. Some of these stay behind situations are still happening, but schools are opening. Yep. Um, they're taking the mask off here in a few days yay. and go LC. Yay. Yeah. Um, so that's awesome. That's the kind of leadership that we need, mm-hmm. uh, that we do. So you decide to run for governor. You're kind of half in still a superintendent, still mm-hmm. processing the school and doing the rest of the school year. You just yep. decided to drop or resign. Yep. From being a superintendent. Um, since then, things have kind of ramped up a lot. You've been doing a lot of campaigning, yep. you know, getting a lot of support, traveling. You're all over the state, it seems like, all the time. Yeah. Um, what are some things that uh, people can do to help support your campaign, to get involved and, you know, just mm-hmm. what, what do you need from the public? What can my followers and my listeners and everybody else do, what can we do to help you? Well, the first thing I want people to know, and I want them, I I want people to know that for me, the best thing they can become is empowered, Mm -hmm. that we are not powerless. And, and, you know, my story is one example, but there were other people at the same, you know, other, other forces that contributed as well. And it wasn't just me. Uh, And it's going to take all of us. So the more energy that people can bring to the campaign, the better. So they can go to Mark, M-A-R-C. C C stands for conservative. If it's all spelled out, uh, so Mark for Oregon, F-O-R, dot com. Uh, There's a lot of resources on my website. If they want to volunteer, click that. Right now, the big push is it's time for people to open their wallets. Yeah. Because we got a primary that we need to win. And we have some establishment candidates in the Republican Party. And I'll just be real direct. Um, they are not going to bring the kind of uh, um, uh, action-oriented leadership that I just described yeah. I brought in, in my school district. You know, uh, the, the issue is there were kids that were committing suicide at record rates during that same school year. And um, I was driving a kid from Cottage Grove all the way to Alsea all year, and two hours one way. Wow. Four hours a day, all year, and um, and and a couple months in, he he explained to me he, he I was driving home after a board meeting. It was late at night, and he just started talking and about how he was going to do himself harm, and he went into grave detail. Wow! And uh, you know, the hair on the back of my neck stood up, and that was back at the just before I had done that, did the whistleblower thing, because not only did we have to get schools open, but this young man was excited to play football, and so I thought, man, well, now we've got to get schools open, but we yeah. have to get OSAA to allow sports and. Um, so I, I, I feel like, I think that's what empowered me to take those huge risks. Sure. And what do we have to lose at this point? Uh, you, you know, know the, what, the thing that I try to explain to people a lot is they've already shown what they're willing to do and how far they're willing to go. They're willing to go as far as we allow it to go. Yeah. Um, and they're going to mask our kids. They're going to vaccinate our kids. They're going to do all of these things, lock them up into a corner and put an iPad in their face. 
um, and just seclude them and completely disrupt their minds entirely. And this is one of the things that, you know, I'm really passionate about with my kids and Mm -hmm. going into school and dealing with just the heartache, you know? Um, I don't think parents ever thought that schools would ever be closed. I don't, I don't think it ever crossed their mind. They built their life. They live out in the suburban area and they're just business as usual. And the next thing you know, Oh, your three kids, what are you going to do? Daycares are closed. Can't do that. Mm -hmm. And you got to go to work. Mm -hmm. And so I think there was a real big come to Jesus moment with people uh, when that happened and how they had to navigate. But with that, there was a huge influx of parental awareness, moms getting involved, school board meeting involvement, uh, just a huge wave mm-hmm. that I think is still continuing. It's really good to see. Um, but with that, you have alternative forms of education. Yep. I know co-ops are going through the roof, mm-hmm. uh, which are awesome. Homeschooling is up uh, private schools. Some private schools are good. Some of them are yeah. still following suit. Sure. So that's a really good thing because I think along the way we've gotten too fat and happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got a warm chicken on the table every night, and you, we watch our Netflix, and 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 that's what it is. But I don't think that that's what people should be doing, right? So there's a mm-hmm. shift I think happening, and people are starting to be more involved, and they're waking up. They know what's going on. They're seeing the corruption now in real time. Mm-hmm. You know, with all the things going on in the government how they use Antifa as a proxy army and they're literally sabotaging any type of development or trends that are being created organically through different movements of just natural parents and natural Americans that want to grow. And so there's a, there's a real uh, conflict going on, you know? Mm -hmm. So it, it's, it's been really interesting um, to watch and see. And uh, in that, I know that some of your policies you were talking about, um, giving the rights back to parents, you know, mm-hmm. if they, if they choose to do homeschooling or they choose yep. to set up a co-op or have some type of alternative, uh, education for their kids, which isn't really far fetched. I mm-hmm. mean, the education wasn't centralized until the 1950s, mm-hmm. you know, so how did we, how did we get educated before that? Right. Did, what did we do? Mm-hmm. Like, how did we function? How did we get to where we were? How did we invent the airplane? Yep. <laughs> you know, before that, uh, I think people need to wrap their minds around different concepts of alternative education. And, you know, as bad as it is and as terrible as this tragedy has been with, you know, what they've done to our kids and how they've disrupted things. It's also shocked people out of their norm to where they're more open and susceptible to alternatives like alternative education. Could you talk a little bit about what your uh, plans are and yeah, well, a how couple you want to navigate around that? A couple of things, you know, in LC, we started Learn at Home Oregon, uh, called Learn at Home Oregon. And um, I did that in, I think we had a six-week turnaround. We invented the curriculum, hired a local um, online curriculum person, and then we hired actual teachers, and we limited screen time. And so uh, we started with zero students, and by December we had 500. Wow. And, of course, that was more students than we'd ever had in the district ever. And so when you look at success like that, um, people flocked to things like that because they felt parents felt listened to. Yeah. This was a program that said you're welcome to sit with your child while they're being instructed. That was the opposite of what so many parents were hearing. 
you know, please let us indoctrinate your children. Yeah. Um, Parents can't go into schools anymore. You got to drop exactly. your kid off in the parking lot. Yeah. Got There's an in and an out. You yeah, know? exactly. And so, you know, you can see there's a market out there. So mm-hmm. for me, um, I like to, to lead by actually by, by modeling action. So I also uh, worked with some folks. And of course, I'm the chief petitioner on the school choice initiative. And what that is an initiative that allows um, uh, taxpayer dollars to follow the child wherever the parents direct it to go. So whether that's homeschool or private school or or um, a public school, there's options for parents. And so if you're going to reach 100 percent of student needs, you really need to trust your parents to know their own children and to know what their children need and to pick the journey or the pathway that's going to work best for that child. And sometimes, it, you know, you got to you might try a few pathways till you find the one that works. But that's the real the real um, uh, I mean, it's the only way to meet 100 percent of needs. If you really think about that. And we have a government government right now that disempowered parents. Yeah. That told parents that you're not able to teach your child that will tell you what your kids need to learn. Yeah. To me, that's insane. So um, uh, that's going on. Um, uh, we're going to also reinstitute standards. I mean, that's another insane thing that uh, Governor Brown just removed. And then most importantly, too, uh, get back to get the focus of education off of. I mean, all we ever talk about is equity. When I was a superintendent, that's all I ever heard in every meeting besides COVID. Yeah. And the thing is, um, equity doesn't teach a kid to read, write, and do math. And we need to get back to competency. So education is like a cross-country race, right? Everybody starts out at the start line, gun goes off, and then what happens? It strings way out. you got people who are really fast runners and some who aren't. Everybody's different. But what, what I want people to understand is that what do parents do at the finish line? Parents line that finish line at every cross-country meet. If you've never been to one, go to one. You'll see what I'm talking about. And they start clapping when the lead runners come in. And they keep clapping as the runners come in. Every runner gets clapped for. It's an amazing – that's why I love cross-country. I coached it for a few years when I was a teacher. It was a lot of fun. And um, But you know who they cheer loudest for? The last person. Yeah, the people that come in last. Hmm. Um, we should be doing that in our high school. The, yeah. the goal is that everybody gets across the finish line. Some yeah. will take longer. Some will have more innate talent. Some, um, But none of this equity where we start at the same place and we end at the same place, That that's not how human beings work. Yeah, you don't. You don't say, okay, wait, 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 wait for the last guy to catch up, and we're all going to cross the finish line together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> what they're doing with math instruction right now. So That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, the uh, all that um, – I was going to talk to you about some other stuff here. That's like an old article. So what kind of uh, – what kind of other things do you guys plan on doing once you get into the into the office? Well, for me, I mean, how are you going to fight these gas prices? Oh, well, that's yeah. Believe me, obviously, that's a global thing. Well, one <laughs> one is uh, well, we're gonna we need to elect a different president, and uh, you know, we can solve the problem right now. I yeah, mean, uh, President Biden could have that problem solved in three months. Sure, if he just opens the tap on American oil production. Mm-hmm. Uh, why he isn't doing that, I cannot explain w- using logic and reason. I could explain it using politics, Sure. see, and that is, uh, you know, oil is bad and, and it doesn't matter how much hardship it creates, oil is bad. Well, they're saying, you know, in Europe and different things right now um, about that and, and talking about uh, Russia removing or stopping oil from production and everything else. And the new talking point is, oh, well, that's great. We'll just go green on everything anyway. We'll just get rid of oil altogether. It's irrelevant. We don't need it. 
Well, that's nice. Um, we don't have enough windmills right now. Windmills, they don't work. Yeah. Well, uh, again, you have to apply reality and reason. Sure. Whether you like it or not. Uh, so for me, a couple of things. One is we need to develop and, and utilize our ports. I was just at a demolition company today. They're they're a great company down south. Staten is their name. They're incredible. Um, and they were talking to me about um, all the demolition they've done over the last 10 years, uh, taking out terminals and ports. That's hmm. insane. We have these incredible resources called Deepwater Ports, Astoria, Portland, mm-hmm. uh, Gold Beach. Coos Bay is the most underdeveloped one, and it's the deepest water port. We have miles of ships out in front of Longview and up in Seattle. What is wrong with uh, Governor Brown in Oregon. We should be developing those ports immediately. Sure. Portland should be running at 100%. Right now it's running at about 67%. That's that's criminal. Yeah. Because think of the jobs and the, 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 the uh, economic activity that that would bring. Every dollar you bring in through a port, by the time it goes through the system in Oregon, the, the, the state economic system, it, it will be magnified six times. It'll become $6 by the time it goes up through the, the end user. Why wouldn't we be investing in that. So Oregon, under my uh, um, leadership, is going to be the new gateway. I've marketed it that way. We're going to massively invest in our ports. We can we could probably have a, um, a shipping container terminal in Coos Bay rather relatively quickly. There was a mill that closed down. That mill can be converted rather quickly to a shipping container. And it's a start. And think about the hope that that brings to people. Yeah. Think about the, uh, the jobs, the family wage jobs that generates. You have to remember that government is supposed to serve the people, and government has to serve 100% of those people, uh, even the ones they don't like. This government doesn't like um, patriots or people who uh, work for a living, apparently, and they don't like farmers now that they've imposed um, um, basically uh, factory-style wage rules onto farming, which is a completely different industry. I've done both, obviously. Um, and you know who that's going to hurt? It's going to hurt multi-generational privately owned farms, but it's going to be great for guys like Bill Gates. Yeah. So he's the number one farm owner in the the country, right? Yeah. See? That's crazy. Um, yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a wild time and, uh, and it's really great to see candidates like you out there, um, you know, speaking truth to power and kind of cutting through all the nonsense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you were supposed to have a debate coming up, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what happened with that? Well, we were told that we had to earn $100,000 and get 1,000 donors. And, you know, the, the tougher uh, hill to climb was the 1,000 donors. That's a lot. Yeah. And um, so we were one of uh, well, a handful of the candidates that met those two metrics uh, by the appointed deadline, which was uh, we, we set March 1st for the campaign. And we met that. Uh, thanks to the, you know, the wonderful thousand people who donated in what, uh, suddenly we were told that they canceled the debate mm. and, um, how convenient. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've been experiencing that. So, um, a little bit of a threat potentially to the establishment. Of course, that's not the storyline I'm getting, but that's, that's the, uh, the feedback I heard, f- uh, through the campaigns. Yeah. Well, I would say, I mean, I'm looking at, I had this article I wanted to show you. So it was showing, here, the 2022 Oregon governors, the primary of the GOP candidates, and yeah. your name is not listed on there. Yeah, I see that. Wow. <laughs> that's What's so that? interesting. <laughs> I mean, how if that's not like, you know, they're just, it, it's, it's amazing how uh, one-sided and swayed things are. You know, these are the people I would actually be concerned about if mm-hmm. they have made it onto this, uh, onto this thing. So... 
what are they not telling us? What else are these people involved with? I think for the longest time, Republicans in Oregon, especially, they've been glad handed backdoor deals. Ultimately, they're just feeding their pockets and giving mm-hmm. everybody lip service. And now the new thing is to pretend that you're a grassroots conservative. Yep. Uh, when you bring in a real grassroots conservative mm-hmm. who's come up from nothing, mm-hmm. who's actually, you know, spoke truth to power, mm-hmm. uh, defied some of the um, nonsense yep. mandates that were enforced and everything of the sort. Um, you know, that's a real telling uh, thing, but I think people are able to see through it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you guys are able to pierce through, uh, and that's kind of the whole purpose of this uh, podcast is I wanted to get uh, a opportunity for that to be heard and seen. Uh, that's and not me else. barking, by the way. I want everyone to know that. <laughs> <laughs> this so, is, yeah. Um, but uh, that's my dog in the uh, undisclosed location. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's over here. It's okay. Yeah, yeah no, it's, it's okay. all good. We can. Uh, we can edit this out. He, but. He's enjoying the interview. Yeah, he is. Thinks, he's hearing my voice, and he's like, oh, Dad, what's up? <laughs> so uh, in, in my experience, uh, with just a couple different things, um, I'm going to actually uh, cut that. Okay. Um, we, did, we did a couple events when the Oregon was locking everything down and all that stuff happened. So I got involved by doing events and I did production. So I was like, okay, let's do some production. So I mm-hmm. called up everybody that was doing events, said, Hey, do you want a stage? Boom, done. Do you want sound equipment? How about we just make your event look amazing? Mm-hmm. And that'll be my contribution. I'll give you a voice, mm-hmm. right? So we'll do that. And we gone through that. And just the interesting th- sequence of events that kind of followed that. Um, my personal story is that we were starting to get a lot of successes. I was getting on the radio. I was on KSLM a lot, uh, talking about different things about what was really going on. Um, the, uh, mass controversy and the case controversy and things like that. Um, and then we were starting to get a lot of traction mm-hmm. and a lot of momentum going on. Well, lo and behold, my trailer with all my equipment the night before, literally four hours before I was going to go pick it up, happened to get stolen And they drove off with it and I got it all on video and (laughs) biggest bunch of dumb knuckleheads that, uh, that exist, but just really interesting. I've had, uh, DHS called on me Mm -hmm. for no reason. Uh, the, you know, the weaponized government Mm -hmm. on how they're combating against grassroots movements, people, they don't want people that are too loud or too pretty or too, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, vibrant to wake people out of their trance, you know, with like Lindsey Graham, I know Lindsey Graham in Oregon, not, mm-hmm. not, not Senator Lindsey Graham, but, uh, she played an integral role, I think in, uh, getting businesses to open back up. She sure did. I think she played such a key role to where she's like enough is enough. And that's why they spotlighted her mm-hmm. and attacked her because she was so successful with mm-hmm. how that worked. And I think that you did uh, something very similar to that with the schools and the school districts and combating against that aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's a, it's a wild world um, here in Oregon and, and we're just, we're just here doing the best we can and, and we want to support you so we can go to markfororegon.com yep. 
uh, get involved. I know you're doing an event tonight at uh, McNary. Yeah, looking forward to that. It's going to be fun. Yeah, that'll be good. Uh, anything else you want to wrap up before we uh, before we get out of here? Well, just let people know. You know, I appreciate you sharing that. I, nice to know I'm not the only one who's been uh, a wep- or uh, been a victim of the weaponization of uh, government. So, um, you know, we did mask optional in January in LC. Mm-hmm. And uh, for me, that was something that was a moral quandary. I just really want people to have that understanding of that. The research had come out in December, and then on the 14th of January, the CDC admitted that masks don't work. Mm -hmm. And their own studies that they had been using to justify masks, uh, they finally released the data with a little asterisk and uh, completely not significant. It was some of the, it's garbage science. And uh, for me, I was done. I was like, okay, this is, but they did admit and all the science supported that masks are harmful to kids. So please don't mask your child. They don't, they get no protection. And uh, I just cannot stress that enough, Um, but it does do harm. So what does an ethical superintendent school board do? Well, we did what we did. We told the truth. We took our kids out of masks. Omicron cases continued to decline when kids weren't masked. That's evidence enough. So here's the thing. Um, It's Mark for Oregon, M-A-R-C. Again, C stands for conservative. And I really want people to understand if they want to be told the truth, if they want to be given good information from their governor, from their government, and they want a governor who's going to empower and support them, because I want to hear from the people. I want to hear about people calling or being uh, victims of weaponized DHS, because we're going to put a stop to all that. Government is here to support and empower people. It is not here to control and suppress. And COVID, I think, woke a lot of people up. It did. Uh, This is our time. we got a three-way race. So I really want uh, everyone to understand that we need a different kind of leader. Uh, I'm going to be the same kind of leader I was as governor as I was as superintendent. So unlike my colleagues who are are my competitors are out aspiring all about what they're going to do, just look at what I have done and, and, and know that I did it not to benefit myself because it was not something my career has not flourished. Um, on the contrary, I had to walk away from it in order to enter the big fight, the statewide fight, which is what I'm doing now. So I really want people to understand that um, uh, I'm in, I want to be governor because um, I want to empower 4.3 million Oregonians to be literally the best they can be. Awesome. Well, thanks for your time, Mark. It was really nice to meet you, and uh, thanks for coming out here. I appreciate and, uh, it. We look forward to the future. I have no idea where I am, so hopefully I'll find my way out. <laughs> thanks. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Non-Compliant America. I'm your host, Joshua Michael. To support Mark for his run for governor, visit markfororegon.com. That is M-A-R-C, fororegon.com. They're going to do everything that they can to block him, so we must get behind him. He is a true grassroots candidate that will do some real good and make some real change in this state. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.